Matthew chapter 7 again, and uh, Jesus is still preaching the Sermon on the Mount. We started last week with, with verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 6 today and then finish out this little paragraph. And if you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen as well. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will uh, help me as I, I try to explain these verses. I pray that you will uh, use your word to soften the hearts of your people. Lord, I pray that if there's one here who's uh, maybe uh, has some areas of their life that they're, they're defending, they're holding back from, uh, from you and, and your complete lordship, I pray that you would um, soften those hearts. I pray that you would use this word to feed your people. And, uh, and I thank you for what you're going to do. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. And you guys can have a seat. So as you can see, we're... We're continuing in our study of these verses that we began last week that are often misused, misquoted, misunderstood. Um, perhaps the most misunderstood passage in the New Testament uh, that, that opponents of Christianity as well as nominal Christians alike use um, and misuse is found here in, in Matthew chapter 7. And, and I, I spoke last week a little bit mentioned that even in the media Recently, we've seen issues of, of opponents of Christianity calling out Christians for certain statements that have been made. And you, you guys know all the Duck Dynasty, whatever happened. Um, and, and I want to start with a little recap of what we talked about last week. Uh, for those of you who weren't here. Um, and because what we learned last week is going to heavily influence what we're learning today. So last week, we looked at just verse 1. Judge not... That you be not judged. And we asked the question of the rest of Scripture. Is Jesus telling us that we should never judge? That, that, is he ruling out all types of judgment? Is he saying that there is never any circumstance where we as Christians can look at a person's lifestyle and their behavior and evaluate that according to a standard and say that's right or that's wrong? Is, is that what he's saying? And the answer that we found as we look just in the New Testament and several large passages of Scripture is that there are most certainly times when we Christians are commanded to look at the actions and lifestyles and, and the, the things of other people and, and compare them to the Word of God to come up with, is this right or is this wrong? So... Jesus can't be making a blanket statement over all judgment because he would be contradicting not only himself, but the other New Testament authors. And not only should we, as Christians, be able to correctly identify right and wrong, but as believers, we're responsible for holding one another, Christian brothers and sisters, accountable to the Word of God. It is our job, it is a command, a responsibility for believers to look at one another's lives if we notice things that are, that are off kilter, that, that are not aligned with the Word of God, we use that and we reprove one another. We keep each other in check. And, and we're supposed to do that. And so um, we, we saw that. We saw in Titus 1 that pastors are commanded. One of our a job description of a pastor is to hold to the trustworthy word as taught so that you will be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, which is what I'm doing. But he also said, and to reprove those or rebuke those who contradict it. So you, you call them out, you, you shame them and show them what you're teaching is false. It's something Christians and pastors specifically are supposed to do. And, and I personally believe that a, a really good sign of maturity as a Christian is being able to say very quickly and, and properly, that's false. 
That's right and that's wrong. That's not Christianity. This is Christianity because I think we would all agree that there are a lot of things floating around in our world that pose as Christian, pose as evangelical. But when compared with Scripture, they're nowhere to be found. They're just invented out of people's minds and they say, well, this is Christian. And that's a a, a mark of maturity is to be able to say, no, that's wrong. That's not what the Bible says. Um, And so we saw that um, that we should be able to do that. Uh, that's one of the really the, one of the biggest benefits of catechisms, which we don't do, but a lot of uh, denominations and churches still do catechisms. They teach their children foundational doctrines using question and answers, and that way they they grow up knowing these things that are foundational. We cannot budge on these issues. This is what the Bible says, and so when it comes under attack, they say, "No, that's wrong. I know that's wrong because I learned when I was a child." And 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 those are important things. That's important for our children to be trained up in those types of things. And we also saw that um, that there are particular areas and and times when we as Christians will undergo judgment. Um, God will will correct our behavior in this life. He will reprove us. He will discipline us uh, to keep us from continuing in self-destructive sins. Um, We saw that all of our deeds on this earth, everything that we do, good or bad, will will be calculated and measured someday. To determine our rewards in heaven and, and that we, we saw that that's a big reason that we should be looking at every area of our lives. Everything that we're doing, every role that we play, we should be looking at and saying, is this something that's going to be beneficial in eternity? Is, is God going to look at this and say, that is a, a, a good thing. You're working for the kingdom or are we allowing things to slip out of those, slip through the cracks? Um, and then the last one we saw was the great white throne judgment. We saw that all people, living and dead, will stand before Christ and we will be judged according to our lives. And those who have rejected the Lord and wanted nothing to do with Jesus will be thrown into the lake of fire. And those whose names that are written in the Lamb's book of life will be escorted to eternal reward. So judgment, we can't just say, you can't judge. People want to say that. You can't judge. Didn't Jesus say, don't judge? But we've seen that if we look at Scripture, that's obviously not what Jesus is saying. And so we need to figure out what's going on. He's he's not dismissing dismissing judgment outright. It's not something we can avoid. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has taken upon himself the curse for our sins so that we don't have to suffer the punishment of God's wrath. But judgment takes place in some form or fashion. And if you're... If you're still confused on all that, the, uh, the podcasts are, are online. You can listen to that and, and put this stuff together. Um, so, moving to today. If you remember several weeks ago, I took a couple minutes at the end of, of a message to explain what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. I, I, try, I put everything together and showed that the main idea behind the sermon and, and what Jesus is trying to show is He's contrasting life in the kingdom of God Versus life in the kingdom of the world or the current religious system that was being taught by the the scribes and the Pharisees. He was showing the difference between the law and the gospel. Between between the life-giving eternal truths of scripture and dead religion. That was uh, the the main spiritual teaching of his day. And that continues to be the case in chapter 7. He continues to do this. So what we have in verses 1 through 6 of this chapter is an example of Jesus pointing out some of the most prominent errors in the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. And you've seen that from the very beginning of the sermon. He he delineates this is what a Christian looks like. This is what a Christian is going to go through in the world. You're supposed to be salt and light. I'm not here to come and do away with the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And then he says... You're going to have to be more holy than the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he begins to unpack how the the teaching, the religious thought and system of the day, Judaism, was was false. It had to be destroyed. It was wrong. They were teaching falsely. And then he continues to do that in this sermon. And And here again, he's showing what the kingdom of God looks like compared to what the Pharisees and the scribes had been teaching. Now, when it came to moral standards 
and holding the common people to moral standards, the Pharisees constantly clung to two different extremes. The religious elite of Jesus' day were guilty of religious fanaticism on one hand, and on the other hand, they were completely indifferent to right teaching, sound doctrine. They were just, they were wrong. They used excessive harshness with others, while at the same time they lived lives of, of moral laxity in comparison to the true teaching of the law. They were outwardly zealous. But they were inwardly lenient. They were extremists on one hand. They were liberals on the other. They were dogmatic on the one hand. They were negligent on the other hand. They were, they were very strict on some things. And other things, it was, it, was, it was not there. And this particular passage is addressing both of those extremes. This extreme over here of fanaticism. And then the, other, the complete other end of the spectrum of liberalism. So I want to show you a few examples of, of Jesus pointing this out very specifically. Um, in Matthew 23, we'll be there sometime. Matthew 23, Jesus goes on an all-out verbal assault on the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean, he, he obliterates them and their character and their teaching in front of everyone in Matthew 23. And at that time, he has entered Jerusalem for the last time before he will be crucified. His entire ministry has been spent showing how what those guys are teaching is wrong. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. His whole ministry. And then, at the end of chapter 22, the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees come to him again like they had oftentimes. They're trying to trick him up. They ask him a question to see what his answer will be so that they can trick him up in his teachings. And so they can say, hey, false teacher, let's get rid of him. But once again, like he always does, he makes them look like complete idiots in front of everyone. And then in chapter 23, he goes into this attack known as the seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. And in these seven woes, he's publicly calling out these men for their errors. He just, he's just drilling them. I mean, obliterating them in front of everyone. In uh, verse 15 of chapter 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice, a much, twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. In front of everyone. So you see there's these two extremes. You, you'll travel across land and sea. You'll go to any extreme to make a proselyte. But on the other side, when he becomes a convert, you teach him falsely. You teach him the wrong stuff. You make him a son of Satan just like you are. In verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You ought to have done, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Once again, there's extremes. When it came to tithing laws, the things that everybody else could watch them do, they were extremists. 10% of everything. But when it came to Justice and mercy and these other what Jesus calls weightier matters of the law, they're not there. They, they, it's just it's neglected. There's nothing. And this was one of their biggest problems. It's one of the main things that Jesus is trying to point out in all of his earthly ministry. This religious system must come down. It is false. It is satanic. And it will be destroyed. And the same is still true with Judaism today. Jews, God's chosen people from the Old Testament. It is an apostate religion. They've turned away. They're going by the droves into hell because they do not, they, they do not believe Jesus is the Messiah. It's, it's, it's been going on for thousands of years. So Jesus is addressing these two extremes. In this particular teaching, he's teaching another principle of kingdom ethics. This is how Christians, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, live. Now, you remember last week I told you that I want to work through these verses backwards because it seems like the majority of the, misin or the, the, the misinterpretation of this comes because people start with verse 1 and end with verse 1. They don't go any further. If, if there's any type of action, any, any type of evaluation, they're quick to say, judge not lest you be judged. You can't judge me. Only God can judge me. You can't tell me anything because only God can judge me. And they stop. They don't finish the rest of the paragraph or the rest of the chapter to get to the context of what Jesus actually means. So I want to go through it backwards because to, to, to read the first part and not get to the rest of it is like telling the first line of a joke 
and not get to the punchline and expecting everybody to laugh. It doesn't make any sense. You have to get to the end. So I want to just start with the end and work backwards. And I think this will, it will make a lot more sense. So, verse 5. We'll come back to verse 6 at the end because it's, it's the, another extreme. Verse 5. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So let's pretend that we don't know what verse 1 says. Let's just pretend like we're hearing it backwards. And so we have Jesus addressing a situation. And there are apparently two people. There, there is a you, you hypocrite. And then there's your brother. So you got two people. He's talking about a situation where there are two people. Now we know that Jesus is in this sermon. He's addressing or speaking to his disciples. Uh, followers of Jesus, God-fearing Jews, we would consider ourselves, when we see you in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking to us. So you and me, you. So you and me, you hypocrite, refers to a Christian. And we know by the word hypocrite that this person is pretending to be something that they're not. Or pretending to, to do something that they're not doing. Or pretending to believe something that they don't believe. Or care about something they don't care about. In some way, they're, they're playing a part. The word hypocrite is, is, was used for a stage actor who would put on a, a costume and act like something they're not. And so this person is pretending to do something that isn't as it seems. So we have you and then we have your brother. So you've got a Christian, you and your brother. So it's a Christian brother. We, we're addressing a situation that is taking place between two Christian brothers. Or we could say a brother and a sister, two sisters. Two Christian people have come together in this situation. And one of them is acting like a hypocrite. One is living as a stage actor. Portraying something that isn't true to reality. Now next, look at the, the very final action that will take place in verse 5. You will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's the end goal. We're going to get this speck out. We've got a speck in our eye. The, the end of this whole situation is that you, which is you're being called a hypocrite, you will be able to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, we're missing some details still. But we, we see that the end goal is to get a speck out of an eye. And we know that there are two people, two Christian people involved in this ordeal. Notice that you, hypocrite, you and me, are being instructed to take a log out of your eye first. Now this gives a little bit more insight into what he's saying. The words for speck and log are very, they're, they're similar. They're, they're, they're wood shop words or, or carpentry words, which makes sense because Jesus grew up in the home of a carpenter. So he understood this. This speck is, as you would imagine, a little bitty piece of, of, of wood, a chip or, or as small as a piece of dust. The word for log is the exact opposite. It's, it's like a, a beam and it carries with it the idea of, of holding something up. So we're, we're picturing a, a, a 14 foot, 6 by 8 piece of lumber, a, a joist, a, some, sort of a, some type of pillar, something huge. A very large piece of wood that would hold up a structure of a building is sticking out of your eye. You have this very large beam sticking out of your eye socket. And your end goal is to get the tiny speck... Out of your Christian brother's eye. That's the goal. And Jesus is saying you need to take the massive log out of your eye. In order to get to the speck that's in your brother's eye. Now when he says you will see clearly. The word for see clearly means to look deeply. To observe. To, to focus. To look through. And you can imagine. We've all been here. Somebody says can you see anything in my eye? Or, or you have to get really close and look. And you know, look that way. Look that way. Get in the light. It takes being able to look deeply and intently and focus on this thing. Get a look at this little speck, figure out where it is in the eye, try to get it out without touching the eyeball. We're getting a picture here. You can also imagine that it would be very difficult to do that with a 14 foot, 8 by 6 piece of lumber sticking out of your eye socket. So you're picturing, you're standing here, and I, and I hope you're getting this picture in your head because this is what Jesus means to happen. He's very smart. He's using these pictures that everyone would have known, and I hope that we understand that this is not meant to be taken at face value. Nobody could actually live with this piece of lumber sticking out of their eye socket. It's figurative. He's trying to help us understand the point. Other than last week, remember, we don't know what the point is. We're forgetting that we know verse 1. So we sum all that up. Jesus is speaking figuratively, and he says, You, Christian, 
You're a hypocrite. You're saying one thing and doing another. You need to take this proverbial log out of your eye socket. You're going to get it out of your eye so that you will be able to properly focus, look intently into your Christian brother or sister's eye so that you can help them get the speck out of their eye. The goal is to remove the speck. The speck has to come out of their eye and you've got to get the log out of your eye first so that you can get to the speck. That's verse 5. Pretending like we don't know anything else, look at verse 4. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? Okay. We're getting somewhere. We're we're moving along. We know the language. We know the words. The speck in the log in the eye and you and your brother. Now we're beginning to see the hypocrisy. Jesus is asking a rhetorical question. It, It seems as though you, hypocrite, you're under the impression that you can get this speck out of your brother's eye. But it's obvious that you can't. The reason you can't do it is because you have a log sticking out of your own eye. It's not going to work. You can't hold this log up and try to get this speck over here. It's not going to work. It's a rhetorical question. So how can you say to your brother, let me get a speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? Answer, you cannot. It can't happen. So in the process of trying to help your brother, your Christian brother, Christian sister with this tiny, minuscule piece of something in their eye, you have completely failed To recognize, to notice this huge thing in your own eye. It seems like your desire is to get specks or little objects, specifically wooden ones, out of people's eyes. That's what you want to do. I just want to go around and I just want to make sure everybody's eyes are clean. The problem is, is that if your goal was to remove specks, specifically wooden ones, out of people's eyes, then the very first one you would have noticed would have been this massive thing sticking out of your own eye. That would have been the most obvious one. You are a hypocrite because you're acting like you want to get specks out of people's eyes, but you don't want to get specks out of people's eyes because you would have noticed the log in your own eye. That's the problem. You're not concerned. You're not really concerned with getting wooden objects out of people's eyes because you would have started with this log in your own eye, this beam that you're still having to hold up and figure out how you can prop up here and get this. It's not going to work. Okay, verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So there's another question. He's addressing the problem with you, which is us. Remember, we're the hypocrites. He's talking to you. We're not not reading this and thinking about the person sitting beside me. We're thinking about you. This question is to you and to me. Why do you see this speck that's in your brother's eye, But you don't notice the log that's in your own eye. That's the question. There's a problem here. Jesus says it's it's a vision problem. The word when he says, do you see? Why do you see? That word in Greek is blepo. It means to look and observe from the outside. So I see that speaker. I see these things. I see you guys sitting here. Now, if you remember the word in verse 5 was different. It was to gaze intently and deeply and focus. It's diablepo. It's similar, but one is looking from the outside quickly like a glance. And one is really focusing and looking really deep. So in verse 3, Jesus is asking this question. Why is it that you can see from an outward glance, just a quick look, this, this tiny speck in your brother's eye... But you do not notice, or notice means to to give careful consideration, to to comprehend, to understand. You don't even notice this huge thing sticking out of your eye. It's like you don't even know it's there. You have this massive log sticking out of your eyeball, figuratively speaking, which obviously is going to obstruct your vision just a little bit. Imagine trying to see something. This is, let's think real life. Imagine trying to see something with a log sticking out of your eye socket. It's going to be a problem. You're not going to have any depth perception. Let alone the fact that you have this log sticking out of your eye socket. So your vision is so terrible. You've got this massive log sticking out of your eye. It's so terrible you don't even understand. You haven't even considered. You haven't noticed this Huge thing in your eye, and yet you think you are going to be the one to go and get this tiny speck out of your brother's eye. That's ridiculous. It's it's hypocrisy. Now, that's five, four, three. We looked at verse one last week, so let's put one and two together. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
So do you get the picture? Do you, do you, are you beginning to understand what Jesus is teaching? See, when we work backwards, we don't even think about the idea of judgment until we get to verses 1 and 2. We're, we're thinking something completely different. You, you guys are smart. You're, you're, you're already kind of understanding what Jesus is addressing here. We don't even imagine... That we would use this section of scripture as a defense for my lifestyle. You can't judge me. Because that's not what he's talking about. He doesn't make any sense. This has nothing to do with judging something, evaluating something according to a standard. Jesus is addressing hypocrisy within the church. The people of God. Two Christian brothers. And when he says judge not, he's specifically addressing citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Who are living hypocritically. They put on this front. Like their goal is to rid their brothers and their sisters of specks of wood. These specks are, are symbolic of, of tiny little sins. Now don't get me wrong. Sin is sin. Every sin should be dealt with swiftly. It should be put to death. There's no room for sin. But figuratively speaking, we've got these tiny specks. These little bitty dust sins. And this Christian, this hip, hypocrite... Is acting like their main goal. All I want, oh man, all I want to do is just get rid of sin. I just want to get these sins out of the way because we don't need sin. We need to get rid of sin. They act like they want to get rid of sin. They act like it is their heart's desire to get sin out of the body of Christ. This is, this is the bride of Christ, right? And he, he said that the, we're going to be washed with the water, the water of the word and we're going to be purified and cleansed and presented to Christ as a blameless bride. And so, man, all I want to do is just get rid of sin. I'm just trying to help everybody because I just want sin out of the picture. The problem is there's this massive sin in his own life sticking out of his own eye socket that is completely evading him. He doesn't even notice it. This is sin in his own heart. This law, this huge, massive sin has existed and remains to exist. It goes completely unnoticed. So it seems like maybe this analysis of sin is not really going like it should. Because they would have noticed this most apparent sin. First, Jesus is saying, you don't care about sin. You're not trying to get rid of sin. You don't care about the presence of sin. Because if you, would, if you cared about sin, you would have been able to see this most obvious sin first. You don't care about sin. He says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The words measure and measure, metron, metreo, they mean to judge by a standard. There is a standard. No matter what anybody says. No matter what any type of postmodern modern thought tries to teach that there's no objective moral standard that we can come up, it's, it's up to the individual. What's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me, and we should keep ourselves separate. That doesn't work. We saw that last week. It doesn't matter where you go, bludgeoning to death elderly people or raping infants is wrong. It doesn't matter. There is a standard. So there's this standard. And you are all going to be judged by the same standard. The problem is you've deemed yourself the one to go around and get rid of the specks out of everybody's eye. You are the self-appointed speck inspector. And you're going around everybody's eyes trying to get all these little specks out. So from the outside, it looks like from the bottom of... Man, that guy from the bottom of his heart, he just wants to get rid of sin. They just want sin gone. They want to help people. But it's a double standard because you're failing to notice the most obvious sin of all, which is the log in your own eye. It is a definite mark of hypocrisy to point out the faults of others while ignoring your own. And that's what Jesus is addressing. These Pharisees lived lives at two extremes. Kingdom citizens aren't zealous about the sins of other while, others while neglecting their own sins. Christians aren't moral fanatics when it comes to everybody else and then just leaving themselves out, being completely lax about their own lives. Christians realize there is a standard of morality that every single person who has ever lived will be judged according to someday. That one standard. And when it comes to looking at people's lives and evaluating people's lives, Christians look at their own lives first. I've got to get my act together first. Before I start looking at my brothers and sisters. Now the word judge here. Like I said last week. It means to decide. To evaluate. To, to separate right from wrong. The word is crino. It's where we get our word critic from. And we all know what it means to be a critic. 
A critic is a person who is characterized by finding faults. That's all they do. Their characters, they just find faults in everything. There's a big difference between being obedient to passages like Matthew 18, Titus 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 5 that tell us to, to rebuke false teaching, to get rid of, of sin. There's a difference between being obedient to those passages and living a life that is characterized by criticism. We are commanded in Scripture to hold our brothers and sisters accountable, but not until we are able to be and willing to be judged by the same standard. Then, and only then, when you are ready to say, I'm able, I'll, I'll submit myself to the same standard. When you must exercise biblical judgment, discernment, rebuke, and reproof with your brothers and sisters, you must do it with love and humility. And we would all expect that, and I hope we all welcome that and expect it from our brothers and our sisters. Keep me accountable. I'll keep you accountable. It is important. So there's a difference between exercising judgment, discernment, rebuke, reproof, and having a judgmental attitude. It would be the difference between owning an exercise bike and being Lance Armstrong's bike. One is, is used in moderation, used properly uh, for the health of the body, while the other characterizes the person himself. You think of Lance Armstrong, you think of, hopefully, you think of bicycle. Um, so if we put all this together... Verses 1 through 5, Jesus is saying, stop being a judgmental, critical person so that you don't fall into judgment for that sin. It is a sin. The standard that you are using to judge others is the same standard that you will be judged by. How is it that you are able to so quickly notice these tiny flaws in the lives of your brothers and sisters when you don't even consider these sins in your own life that are massive in comparison? How can you act like you want to help your brother or your sister with these small issues when your vision is obviously hindered by these massive issues in your own life? You are nothing more than a hypocrite. You don't care about sin. You don't care about getting rid of sin. What you need to do is stop, analyze your own life first, make sure you are Clear and your heart and your mind are clear and you are confessed and, and repented of sin and you're, you can submit to the same standard. And then, after all that, you go to your brother with humility and love and respect and trembling and tears if you have to and say, something doesn't add up. This is what the Bible says and you say you're a Christian and your life looks like this. Maybe I'm wrong. Please tell me I'm wrong. But if not... Why not get rid of it? Confess it. Let's, let's, let's move forward. See, a judgmental person is quick to notice tiny specks in the eyes of others because that's what they live for. That's what they do. The problem is that they only see through obstructed vision. They have a sin problem in their own life and so they don't see properly. John Chrysostom, the early church father, speaking of this passage, he says of Jesus, He is not overthrowing reproof or correction, but forbidding men to neglect their own faults. And exult over those of other men. See, the idea is you look at your life first. And then you look at the lives of others. And there is this is not saying, well, once you become perfect, then you can look at somebody else's life. Because nobody's perfect. There, there will be people who get to a point in, in the church. And there are pastors and, and leaders and, and normal people who get to a point where they're willing to step up. And be a man or a woman of God and say, hey, look, it looks like your life's not adding up. Let's get this fixed. It's that important. I'm willing to risk you getting angry at me for the sake of getting sin out of the body of Christ. It's that important. So don't act like, well, once you're perfect and you're, then you can judge others. That's not what it's saying. It's saying once you're willing to be sub, submit, uh, submitted to the same standard. So that's the issue in verses 1 through 5. That's one extreme. The fanaticism of the scribes and the Pharisees. They would be very strict on people. Judging every detail of their lives. Jesus said you heap a burden on the people that you are unwilling to, unwilling to carry yourselves. He said you, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You're of this extreme. The minutia of the law that they had invented. They were pushing on to everyone else and creating a system that was nothing more than dead religious observance. So that's one extreme. Okay, we got one verse left. Verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, 
lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now I know this seems out of place when you read it at face value. There are, there have been commentators throughout history who say this verse was just stuck in there. It doesn't go along with anything. I disagree and I'll show you why. Jesus is showing how life in the kingdom of God is contrasted against life in, in, the, in the current worldly religious landscape of his day. If he's addressing the extremities of the religious elite and he's just addressed one extreme, it only makes sense that he would go and address the other extreme. If he's just addressed the dogmatism when it came to the minor points of the law, then he must go on to address their leniency when it came to other things. If he's challenging their zeal, then he has to also challenge their negligence. That's what verse 6 is about. It's the other extreme. At one point, all you care about is looking at the faults of others. And at the other extreme, you're liberal in your discernment. So he uses more word pictures, which Jesus does very often. And this is a very popular form of teaching in this day that people did this. They use word teachers. This particular form of teaching is called a chiasmus. So think in your mind this as a poem. In America, when we think poetry, all we think of is rhyming. Rose are red, violets are blue. Okay? Around the world, poetry doesn't necessarily mean rhyme. So think of this as a poem written in lines. And each line has a letter beside it. And the letters are A and B. And this chiasmus is in the form A, B, B, A. So I'm going to try to paint this. Line one, do not give dogs what is holy. Put an A beside it. Next line, do not throw your pearls before pigs. Put a B beside it. Next, lest they trample them underfoot. Put a B beside it. And the final line, and turn to attack you. Put an A there. So we put the A's together and the B's together and we get the word picture. Don't give dogs what is holy lest they turn to attack you. Don't give pearls to pigs lest they trample them underfoot. That's the word picture. Now still it doesn't make any sense. Dogs in Jesus' day were not typically pets like we think of them. They were in the, in the Eastern world they were like scavengers. So you think about what you know about a dog, if you have a dog, and, and then try to apply that to the, a, a wild dog, which most of you have probably never seen a wild dog, but we know normal dogs. Dogs jump at food no matter what it is, for the most part, especially if they're hungry. It doesn't matter. If it smells remotely decent, a dog will eat it. It's, it's unbelievable um, how they, they do this. They eat food just because it's there. I've had a puppy. I, I you know, laid some food down. I think it was a, a can of Spam. And I was like, here, have this. Didn't stop. Ate the entire thing until it couldn't move. Just laid there. Couldn't move. Just because it was there and it smelled good, they didn't have the discernment to say, I'm getting sick, I should stop. Because that's how dogs are. They just eat and eat and eat. Dogs are symbolic of open profanation. They jump and eat just to be eating. They have no desire for long-term physical fitness. They don't think about the future. They just devour. They just chomp and eat it. That's a dog. Okay, a pig in Jesus' day, especially to a Jew, was considered absolutely horrid, disgusting animal. They didn't eat pork. They considered pigs ceremonially unclean. Don't want to be around a pig. Not to mention, pigs are filthy animals. Pigs wallow in the mud because they enjoy it. If you wash a pig, they will go straight back to the mud and get in the mud because they have no discernment. They don't understand clean and dirty. They understand, I like mud, and that's all they do. They have no comprehension of the idea of cleanliness. Pigs are indifferent to filth. They are ignorant of the idea of clean and worth and value. They don't get it. They just know mud, I want it. So you got dogs and you got pigs. Okay, now in this section, what is Jesus talking about? Beginning in verse 1 through verse 5, he's addressing how to properly and lovingly reprove our brothers and sisters in Christ in order to remove sin from the body. And the final goal, verse 5, get the speck out. That's the goal. Spiritually, that kind of loving reproof, going to a brother and a sister and helping them rid their lives of sin, that type of biblical judgment, that type of discernment requires a proper understanding of the standard. You have to know truth. It takes a vast understanding of God's word, God's truth revealed in his word. God's truth is holy. God's truth is different than man's truth. The word of God is living and active. 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of spirit and soul, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's standard of, of eternal wisdom and truth, right here, is necessary for proper discernment of right and wrong. For the Christians, you want to know what's right and what's wrong, you go to this. This is the standard, always. Go to this. What's right and what's wrong, go to this. Okay? Later on, we'll see in Matthew that this, this word of God is compared to, this, this, this gospel of the kingdom is compared to a pearl of great price that's hidden in a field that is worth going and selling everything you own to get this. Get the pearl. It's, in, it's, it's of incalculable worth. It is holy and valuable. It is eternal truth. And that's the eternal truth that you need when you're going to your brother and your sister to help them rid the, or get the specks out of their lives. So we have... The extreme of religious fanaticism in verses 1 through 5. And then we have the extreme of moral liberalism in verse 6. Jesus is saying God's, God's word, this, this book of wisdom and truth is to be used properly and divvied out according to discernment. In verses 1 through 5, he's telling us when it comes to your brothers and sisters, Christians... Look at your own life first and then proceed to lovingly apply biblical truth. Help them see the sin and get rid of it after you've compared your own life to biblical truth. But there are people in this world who are like the dogs and the pigs of verse 6. The dogs are those that are living in incurable ungodliness without any visible hope of change for the better. They will pounce on the wisdom of God for no other reason than just that it's there. They don't care about it. They're not thinking about the future. They don't want to use it properly. They have no intention of allowing the word of God to penetrate into their hearts and change them. They just pounce and devour and it's likely you might get your fingers bit like a dog when they're going for it. They just devour there are also the pigs. The pigs are those people who, who live continually in an openly sinful lifestyle. They have no bearing on, on cleanliness and filth or purity and filth. They have no filter for discerning cleanliness and dirtiness. They don't know how to decipher things of worth from things of unworth. They don't understand it. They have no bearing. They don't know the difference between muddy water and soapy water. And they just assume being muddy water than anything. So when it comes to applying the wisdom and the truth of God's word to the lives of those who are in the world, outside the church, the lost world, we Christians must be able to discern when and where and how these things are applicable. Now we want to see, I, I, don't hear me say, you know, don't share the gospel with people because we want to see all people. Be brought to repentance and a knowledge of the truth and be saved. But we also must be able to tell when a person is unreceptive, unresponsive, uncaring, flat out upset because we keep pummeling them with the gospel over and over and they don't want to hear it anymore. We have to know when those times come. There are times when we should stop and let it be. Because the wisdom and the truth of God is not being held to a respectable standard. If you're just throwing out stuff just to pummel somebody with scripture and they're not receiving it, you're not holding the word in a respectable manner. You're not holding it with honor. The dog-like people will pounce on it just to get something new. They don't care. Just just something to learn. Just something to absorb. More knowledge. The pig-like people don't know the difference between gospel wisdom and mud. They don't know kernels of corn and grain from pearls. And when they find out that that is not food, it's not something that's going to immediately satisfy my selfish desires, they trample all over it. They abuse it, they destroy it, they misuse it. Those are pigs and dogs. Proverbs 29.3 says, Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your word. Are your words. There are some people who simply cannot receive God's truth properly. And God's truth is worthy of being held with respect. Jesus told his disciples, go into a town. If they don't receive you and your message, walk back out and shake the dirt off your feet. The dirt of that town is not even worth being carried on the feet of those who bring the good news of the gospel. That's what he said. Now the Pharisees, they had no filter for this 
type of nonsense. They would just toss out a line to anybody who would take it. Anybody. They would, they would cross land and sea to make a single proselyte. It didn't matter to them. If they could get one person to just, just bite. If they could make one more son of Satan. That's all they cared about. We... Christians, on the other hand, are to be wise and discerning. Be smart. Use the methods God has given us. Use the word God has given us. Use the wisdom God has given us. Some people say things like this. I would go to any extreme. I would do anything just to see someone saved. It sounds like a good thing to say. But they don't really want people saved. They want to make people like them. Christians... Are called out of the world. So we don't get to use the world's logic and reason. In order to convince somebody that Christianity is right. We can't do anything to get somebody to walk an aisle. Or pray a prayer or sign a card. We have been given one method. To make converts. To, to make disciples. And the Bible says the gospel is the power of God and salvation. We have one message. We boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel, allowing it to do its work and allowing the Holy Spirit to do His work in the heart of a person. We can't just do anything to get somebody saved. We don't just do anything to get somebody to say, I mean, okay, yeah, I guess I'll, you know, I guess I'll believe that. That's not what we want. We want people to know the gospel. We want people to see, yes, I am a sinner and I need to be saved and, and, and I'm under the wrath of God. And if, if somebody doesn't take my place, I'm doomed. And praise God, Jesus has done that. That's what we're trying to get people to see, not, you know, oh, of course I'll come to God if he's going to give me health. Of course I'm going to come to God if he's going to make me my life happy and easy and smooth. That's not what the Bible says. It says we use the gospel. And that's the idea of Jesus teaching here. He, he's saying use God's truth properly. Discern your own heart compared to the word of God before you look at the hearts and the motives of others. Reprove lovingly. When necessary, use the wisdom of God's word to lift your brothers and sisters back onto their feet and continue moving forward with the word of God. And when it comes to those who are outsiders, they're lost. We're trying to get them to understand the gospel of the, of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we have to be wise. We have to be discerning. We have to be humble. We have to be honest. We have to trust God's truth to do its work and trust the Holy Spirit to change the hearts of men. We can't change hearts. We can use all this logic and reason and help somebody come to a conclusion. Okay, well I guess Jesus did die on the cross and come back from the dead. But if they're not trusting in that for their salvation because they know that if they don't they're going to go to hell. They don't know the gospel. They just know, I believe, a fact of history. And the Bible says the gospel is the power of salvation. It's not our own cunning. It's not clever ideas. It's not smooth arguments. It's the gospel. All people, everybody is born alienated from God because of sin. We are rebels against God. We are at enmity with God. Rather than banish us all to hell, which is what we deserve, God has chosen to save some. And he sent his son Jesus to take on the flesh, to become a human being, to live a perfect life in our place, die on the cross in our place so that we don't have to go to hell. He came back from the dead three days later to prove, yes, I am the son of God. And yes, your justification is finished. It's taken care of. Our job is to turn away from ourselves, die to yourself, take up your own cross, follow Jesus even unto death if he should require and what do we get? What do we get from all this? Do I get a promise of, of at least being healthy? Nope. Do I get a promise of le uh, at least my bills are going to be paid? Nope. Do I get a promise that at least my kids are going to be healthy? Nope. You get God. And that's that you get God. That's the goal of the gospel is to get God. You're no longer alienated from God, but you're reconciled back to God, adopted as sons of God, co-heirs with Jesus. Not just... Back to neutral, God looks at us and loves us like he loves Jesus. So that's the gospel that we preach. And that's eternal truth. That is unchangeable truth. It's godly wisdom. It's the power of God to salvation. It's holy truth. It's the pearl of great price. And no one will ever be saved without hearing that message into their ears. 
untarnished, and unadulterated. If you're not a Christian, that's the message you need to believe in and trust in for your salvation to avoid final judgment. Now maybe you're a Christian and you, you are a believer, but you are using or have been using Matthew 7, 1 as a defense for some actions. Maybe you didn't say it out loud. Maybe you're just thinking it. Maybe, you know, you've got parents or friends or family members or neighbors or preacher guy up here who's, who's challenging my lifestyle. And, and well, you've just been holding on to this. Well, only God can really judge me. I mean, he, that might be what he thinks, but only God can really judge me. My question is, what is it in your life that you have to defend? What, what's going on that you have to fight off? Why is there something in your life that others are pointing out that you want to hold on to? You refuse, you refuse to give it up. My, my encouragement is compare your life to the Word of God like we're all expected to do. Allow the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin and get it out. What are areas in your life that you need to surrender to the Lord? Why? What are places in your life where you started in your own logic or the logic of the world rather than from Scripture and you're beginning to live your life out the way the world has told you and then try to fit this in somewhere? Rather than saying, well, this is what God's word says, and I'm going to do it no matter what. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. What are those areas? What, are you, what would you try to defend? See, we're all expected to examine ourselves. If you're a Christian, the Bible says test yourself to see whether you are of the faith. We examine ourselves. We look at our hearts. We are also expected to hold accountable our brothers and our sisters. I expect you, if you hear me preach something that this Bible doesn't say, you call me, you come to me and you say, you said something that God's word doesn't say and we got to get this settled out. And I'll come back up here the next week and I'll say, hey, I messed up. I said something wrong and I don't want to do that. I expect that. And I hope you expect that. We have to keep one another accountable. God has given us His word as a measuring rod, a plumb line with which to compare ourselves. We should be looking at every area of our life, every role that we play. Husband, father, dad, preacher, family member, brother, sister, co-worker, boss. Every role that you play, every aspect. And say, is there something there that I could change in order to glorify God better? To be more holy. That's not legalism. That's not trying to earn God's favor. That's saying Jesus died on the cross for me. It only makes sense that I would live my life to the best of my ability to please Him. So what are those areas? Look at your life and think of those areas. And when it comes to sharing the gospel with people, be smart. Share the gospel with everybody. Try at once with everybody. But be smart. If, if they're, they're just not hearing it, if they're angry because you're doing it, just stop and pray. Sometimes it may take God working through your prayers to send somebody to that person that don't get on their nerves as much as you do. We don't know what it might be. So we just, there are situations where we just have to stop and say, man, all I can do is pray at this point. They seem so far from God. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed.